In Revelation chapter number 11, we've, this is the fifth of six messages uh, in these worship settings in, in, in uh, heaven, in the book of Revelation. And they all carry some continuity. They have some similar overlapping themes. I hope that doesn't get redundant for you. My thought is, if the Bible mentions it over and over again, I'm on good ground when I mention it over and over again. And one of the things that we're really trying to do is is just to refresh our understanding of why we worship, who we worship, and what does worship even look like. And I do believe that a lot of the worship that we experience down here when we're gathered together has much more to do with the culture in which we are raised spiritually, sometimes denominationally. And what I want to do is I just want to be free of all of that stuff. I'm I'm not trying to ruin the culture, but at the same time, I don't want to be trapped in it. I want to worship God like like he wants to be worshiped. And, And my thought is the best place to find that is in the scriptures because we know it's perfect worship when it's given in Scripture. And so that's been the point of the series called Above All. And tonight uh, I'm, I'm going to bring a message called Proven Worship. And um, I think I say this every week, but this is my favorite of all of these messages. And so it's just because it's the one I'm currently preaching. Revelation chapter number 11, verse number 15. John's writing and he says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Now, there's a part of me that just wants to keep going and going, and quite frankly, this week, as is, is I've just been studying chapter number 11 and just really pondering on it, I can't stay in chapter number 11, so I've just been sneak peeking all the way into chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, all the way through chapter number 22, because I get excited the closer we get to the end of the redemption story. And so when I get a little taste of this, and you're saying, Jeff, I don't, I don't even know what you're talking about. You will before we leave here tonight. You're going to leave here saying, oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Because we're going to get back to the, to the back, almost to the very last page of the last chapter. Not quite there, but getting so close. And this is what it's all about. Now, I'm, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions before we get into the text tonight. What is God doing what is he doing? All this stuff that goes on in the kingdom and the the list is longer than we could name, impossible to number, but all of the components of the kingdom. I mean, you're talking about things like sharing the gospel, the great commission, evangelism, teaching, training, studying, fasting, praying, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, prophetic gifts, and then gifts that maybe aren't, aren't 
overly considered supernatural, like gifts of leadership or gifts of administration. They're all supernatural because they're housed in the Holy Spirit. But what about tongues and words of knowledge and healings and miracles? And, and, and you know, I mean, we've got seas being split and we've got the, the, the earth's rotation stopping in the Old Testament. You've got massive angelic invasions at certain points throughout the, the, the scriptural narrative. What, what is God doing? And then when we get in the book of Revelation, we've got these crazy scenes that stagger our mind with heavenly creatures that have eyes on the inside and eyes out the outside and multiple wings. And they're crying out day and night, never ceasing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then when we study some of the, the chapters in the book of Revelation and we see that where the world, humanity, has hardened its heart against this holy God who loved them. And wanted to save them and rescue them and be with them forever. But they shook a defiant fist in his face and said, no, we will not have you to rule over us. And so as they hardened their heart, God gave what is called a judicial hardening of their heart. In other words, they hardened their heart to the point where God removed their ability to unharden their heart. And so they remained in that hardened position until the end. And, and when we read those chapters, we see that God in his holiness is, is, is compelled to judge that defiance and that rebellion and that hatred of him. And so we see all the, the horrors of the tribulation that take place. But what is he really doing? What is all of this about? What is the big picture of God and man? You know, we get so caught up in the here and now and the, 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 the trees that we miss the forest. We get caught up in the components of the kingdom so often that if we're not careful, we'll forget the big picture of the kingdom. So what is God doing? Well, I'm going to tell you what he's doing. It's what he's always done. It's what he's always been in the process of completing. He started in Adam and Eve in a perfect paradise, and his goal was, I want to be with you all of the time, and I want to be with your descendants. I want a relationship with you, and I want you to know me. That was his agenda. Adam and Eve dropped the ball, to say the least. They fumbled, they sinned, and a curse came upon mankind, and a curse came upon the earth, and yet God was not taken off guard by this. He said, I have a plan from the foundation, from before the foundation of the world, and I will redeem what you humans forfeited. I will build a kingdom, and I will get what I aimed to do from the beginning. I will have me a people, and I will be with them forever and ever, and I will build my kingdom, which is just another way of saying, I will provide for myself a family that they may know me and that I may know them. What is God doing? God is advancing a kingdom, and yet when you look in the world today, you have to look by faith to see the kingdom of God. Because all around of us is a different kingdom, a different domain, a visible, temporary, tangible, material kingdom that is referenced in this very passage that we're looking at tonight. And in order for God's will, his plan, the destiny he has set upon humankind, in order for it to be filled, there has to be an overthrow of that which impedes his will. 
He has to bring down this kingdom so that his will be the only one remaining. And that's what is left to us in the book of Revelation. And believe it or not, my friends, it involves some aspects that we're going to see that heavenly inhabitants worship him for, but you're going to struggle with worshiping him on at least one of these points tonight because it doesn't feel right to us. So now that I have your curiosity piqued, let's get into the word. Verses 15, 16, and 17. There's only three points tonight in these five or six verses. Here's the first one. Everlasting worship is employed. And so look with me in verse number 15, and here's what we are all longing to hear. Right here it is. In verse 15, the seventh angel blows his trumpet. This is a judgment trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven, again, loud in heaven, saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. As the judgments are being unleashed upon a hardened humanity, upon a world system full of inhabitants that have said no to God, full of hatred and rebellion and animosity towards him. They have refused his son Jesus as literally the wrath of God is beginning to be poured out on planet earth. Coming in the future, hasn't begun yet, but it will happen. In the midst of this, this angel blows the seventh trumpet, which is going to unleash the worst of the woe upon planet earth. And as that is taking place in the heavenly vision in the heavenly scene this is the declaration as it's happening they know that this is the final stage of the end of the rebellion and so the heavenly inhabitants say this the kingdom of the world is now become the kingdom of our lord and of his christ who will reign forever and ever now you haven't thought about that much today I doubt very seriously that many of us, if any of us, have given a lot of thought to the fact that there's coming a moment in time where the literal kingdom, and it's given in the singular, it's not kingdoms, it is a kingdom because when God looks at the earth, he doesn't see Russia, America, China, North Korea, Africa, he doesn't see all of that. He says it is a world system, it is a fallen kingdom, no matter what the people look like, no matter what their philosophy, no matter what their political persuasion is, unless they have come under the blood of my son Jesus, it's all one kingdom, and ultimately the ruler of that kingdom is Satan himself. But when we get to the back of this, the the, the praise and the expression of worship in heaven is this. Now, as that final woe is going to be poured out on planet earth, now the testimony of heaven is, this is it. It is a permanent and forever end to the kingdom of the world. And now, our king, King Jesus, the Son of God, will set up his eternal dominion and rule on planet Earth. Now, friends, I don't know about you, but quite frankly, that's really all I'm longing to hear. Uh, You know, I mean, I I know that a lot of Christians, unfortunately, got their drawers in a wad. Come, uh, You're not supposed to say that in the pulpit, but I did. But got all bunched up in the election season because their guy either lost or or their lady lost or their guy won. And there was a whole lot of nastiness. And I want to tell you something. You've got your hope in that nonsense. My goodness, you need a layer of sanctification on your life. Why? Because listen, when we're thinking about this kingdom, it means that, that throughout the history since Jesus... Think of all the Caesars that have come and gone. Think of all of the world's kings that have come and gone and queens and emperors and warlords and generals and and 
prime ministers and, and presidents, and in the moment, they all feel like they are the man or they are the woman and they are the strength, and nations' hopes are built upon these men and women, but ultimately, they all die, they're all buried, and they all enter into eternity to stand before the one who is going to reign forever and ever. You know, there's a whole lot of saber-rattling going on in the world today between the North Koreans, the Oval Office, uh, the Kremlin, places in Africa, places in, in, uh, in other parts of the world where there's just chaos. And people are saying, oh, we just need the right leader. We just need the right leader. And God says it doesn't matter. Even if you get a godly one in there, the system itself is corrupt. The system is. There's only one kingdom that's worthy of our ultimate loyalty, and that is the kingdom of Jesus Christ our Lord, and it's coming to a planet near you very soon. And so we're longing to hear that. So if we have another election in four years and your guy or your gal wins or loses, quite frankly, in the grand scheme of things, as a citizen of a greater kingdom, none of that really matters. That's a temporary impact for sure, but it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. So lift up your eyes under the hills. That's where your help comes from. Your help comes from the Lord, not from some temporary kingdom. Now, what are we all going to do? This is, again, briefly in verse number 16. It says this, The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and they worshiped God. We've seen this in every message, so I'm not going to belabor this, but there is something about the magnitude of the glory of God in heaven that at times results in when people are, are wrapped in his, in his glory and completely just kind of overwhelmed in his presence, they, they end up on their faces worshiping. I believe most of the time it is an act of their will. They literally put themselves down before the Lord. But I would not be one to say that every time it is an intentional act of their will. Sometimes they just get glory struck. And they can't take the kavod, the weight of God's presence. And here we have yet another element in the book of Revelation. As a matter of fact, if you go all the way back to chapter number one, John makes this testimony. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So John completely in the spirit, the spirit filling him, him being completely yielded to the spirit. And what was the result? John ended up on his face in the presence of the Lord. Uh, we, we've had to deal with this over the last couple of years here that when some people get just overwhelmed with the Lord and they just can't stand. And, and for a lot of us that grew up starched and dignified and very evangelical in our denominations, we, I mean, we didn't even lift our hands, much less get in our faces on the floor. That, that sometimes sends a weird pulse into you. And I just want to say this, just unclench, relax, and recognize that sometimes God's bigness hits somebody so strongly that the most natural thing in the world is for them to make themselves very small in the presence of the Lord. And it's not a scary thing. It's a biblical thing. And so we are going to be doing that in heaven, by the way. I mean, listen, the elders are representative in some way, and the 24 elders in the book of Revelation are representative of some way of redeemed humanity. They're our representatives. And when they see God in all of his glory, they hit the floor. They fall on their faces. So I don't think any of us stand a chance in heaven. We're, some of us are going to get up there, I didn't do it on earth, and I'm not going to do it in heaven, my friend. You don't have a clue what you're going to be able to do in heaven. And I will just say this, just yield to the Lord, whether he keeps you upright or he lays you out flat, just yield to the Lord, because ultimately, it's not so much about the posture of our bodies, but it is about just the, the openness of our spirit and our heart to him. And in this case, 
the praise brought them to their knees. Verse 17, what are we all going to shout? What are we all going to shout? Well, I love this because here's the shout. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. I love the very fact that the theme of heaven's worship, the fragrance of it, is gratitude. It is thanksgiving. It is an awareness as they stand in the presence of the Lord. And by the way, most of these people that we're picturing in these scenes suffered immensely for their loyalty to Jesus. They did not have sugar-coated, sweet little tiptoe-through-the-tulips Christian lives. But they suffered immensely in order to be able to walk into the very presence of the Lord in heaven. And when they got there, there was no complaining. There was no, hey, I had it rough down there. What were you doing? There was, no, there was no dialoguing with God about how he might have done a better job with their lives. You don't do that in heaven. But what you do in heaven is when you see him and you know you've been delivered and you know that you've arrived and you know you've stepped into the fullness of your inheritance, you literally look at him and all you can say is, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Brothers and sisters, I just want to give us this, just a pastoral nudge here. Let's not wait till we get to heaven before that spirit hits us hard. Every single one of us in the room has challenges. Some of them are enormous. Each one of us has a history, and some of those chapters in our our own personal history book contain very painful pages. All of us have regrets. There are fears that can come against us, and I understand that. That is why God has said, I want you to set your affection on things above. I want you to seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. And that means if we will take all of our focus and we will just literally, intentionally divorce our minds from this world at times and just get centered in him, I promise you, as you come out of that kind of worship, you're going to grow in your gratitude. I was having a conversation with Landon today. He's about to be 12, and he's, he's, he's starting to like kind of be a man. If you've raised sons, you know about that. Or if you were a son, comes that shift where you're not a little boy anymore. And Landon's got him. He's got some baritone in his voice now. He's starting to talk like this a little bit. And so he's feeling kind of manly. And so we were talking today, and he, he, he's like, Dad you, Dad, you told me when, when I was little that you wanted to raise me to be grateful. Dad, Dad, do you think I'm grateful? And I just looked at him. I said, son, that was like one of the top three priorities for my, your mom and me is to raise you in gratitude. And yes, young man, you're grateful. And then I added, stay that way. You know why? Because I believe that a grateful heart is like a master key that unlocks countless kingdom doors. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I think it was, said an ungrateful heart is the first step towards apostasy. When we lose our gratitude, we lose our focus, we lose our balance, we lose our vision. But when we stay grateful, and you, by the way, you have to do that. It's, it's, it's almost senseless to say, well, well, God, just make me grateful. God says, well, if you will just think on me and you will just intentionally cultivate that grateful heart, it will become second nature to you. And so when they get to heaven, their songs are just, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, I'm going to encourage you to thank him in spite of all the things that don't, you, you don't necessarily feel thankful for. I, I'm literally going to encourage you to break through barriers with your verbiage that you're literally going to be able to frustrate the enemy 
Because the enemy loves to keep us sour and discouraged. And sometimes when I feel it in my heart, I refuse to let my heart dictate what comes out of my mouth. And so when I feel discouraged or I feel listless or devoid of power, or or maybe I'm struggling with hope in a certain situation and I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. I refuse to let that hopelessness or that struggle be spoken over my life. Instead, I just start thanking God. Thank you, God, that in 1994, you found me as a drunk and a drug-addicted, miserable, homicidal, suicidal man, and you found me in Lawrenceville, Georgia, and Lord, you didn't crush me, but you, you saved me and you kept me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for my wife. Thank you for my children. Thank you for the privilege of owning a Bible. Thank you, Lord, that I, I, I'm, I'm not in the hospital today. Thank you, Lord, for, for feeding me and sheltering me and clothing me. Thank you for letting me pastor. Thank you for letting me pray. Thank you, thank you. And you just start thanking him. And it's amazing what happens. You have an attitudinal shift. Your whole focus begins to shift. And the things that were clawing you and pulling you down, when you just refuse to let what's on the inside, the struggle on the inside, if you start speaking that struggle out of your life, it grows in its power. But instead of speaking the struggle, speak gratitude, and the struggles seem to lose their, their, their intensity. doesn't mean all your problems go away. It just means that you're writing them and you're, they're not writing you. And so when I hear this, I say, Lord, I want to... Remain thankful. So go down into verse number 18 with me uh, this evening. This is where I think you may be having... I I know I struggle with it. I don't want to put that on you, but let me me just assume that some might struggle with this. When we talk about worshiping God for His wrath, in verse number 18, earth's wicked are destroyed. Verse 17... Everlasting worship is employed. Verse 18, earth's wicked are destroyed. Let's see if we can go there together. We will worship him for his wrath. Now just hang on tight with me. Verse 18, listen to what they're singing in worship in heaven. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged. We'll pick back up with the rest of the verse in a minute. So... When this worship scene takes place, the tribulation is simultaneously taking place on earth. The tribulation is a seven-year period split in half. The first three and a half years are marked with um, a fairly reasonable sense of peace. There's a lot of deception. The Antichrist has taken his power. He's deceived the nations. He has brought a false sense of peace to the world. But halfway through the tribulation period, at the second half of that seven years, the Antichrist begins to act as his character is true. In other words, he sets himself up to be worshipped as God. He takes control systemically of the government and the religion, the mark of the beast is given. And without the mark of the beast, the, uh, you, in that day, the people will not be able to sell. They will not be able to buy. They will not be able to eat. Literally, I'm not being flippant with the statement, all of hell breaks loose on earth. And that is coupled with the fact that God begins pouring out judgment on the earth. So you've got the devil working hellishness on earth. And then you've got God's holy wrath coming down on earth at the same time. It will blow away any Hiroshima, Nagasaki, anything like that. It will blow away anything that history has ever ever known with the amount of violence and suffering and evil that will take place on the earth. And interestingly enough, the inhabitants of heaven are looking at the Lord's part of it and they're saying, we praise you for bringing your wrath upon the wicked. My friends, this is something I think emotionally or even intellectually I struggle with. 
Because we live in a day of mercy, we live in a day of compassion, but this is all I'm asking for us to do, is to discipline our minds and say this, that there is coming a day when mankind, the inhabitants of earth, that the, the vast majority of the inhabitants of earth will have so hardened their hearts against God that it's impossible for them to be saved. They cannot be saved at that time. And so they will increase in their wickedness. As a matter of fact, you're going to find in the book of Revelation when some of God's wrath is being poured out, you would think people would say, okay, okay, I repent, I repent. And instead of repenting as they're suffering, as they're trying to hide from the wrath of the Lamb, as it's called in the book of Revelation, instead of repenting in brokenness and humility and confession, they're literally intensifying their rebellion against him. And so the justice of God is being poured out and the inhabitants of heaven as his justice is being poured out. They are saying, we worship you for your wrath has been poured out. You may want to write down, if you're taking notes, Psalm 76, verses 7 through 9, which say this. But you, Lord, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger has been roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and stood still when God arose to establish justice and to save all the humble of the earth. Psalm 76, verses 7, 8, 9. Even in the Psalms, there is a prophetic proclamation that God would be worshipped because he will in justice, holy, perfect justice, he must punish and eradicate sin. And if a sinner does not repent of that sin, God is obligated upon his own holy nature to destroy the sinner who would not by faith come out of his or her sin. And so when that fury is poured out on earth, it is not that the people are taking an an unhealthy delight in the destruction of the wicked. What they are doing is they are saying, our God is holy, our God is just. He has promised to eradicate the cosmos from all sin. And so as he is purging it from earth, we worship him. We're not rejoicing primarily that they are suffering and dying because of their rebellion. We are worshiping this holy God who is to be feared because he has kept his holy covenant. He said, I am of too pure of eyes to look upon sin. And there's coming the day where he will eradicate it. It's so important for for us to think about this for a moment. Friends, uh, we live in weird times. Even in your lifetime, it was no problem for a teacher, a preacher, somebody, even a a witness one-on-one to speak of hell and wrath and judgment. In my lifetime, I've only been saved since 1994, I have seen that the church just move so far away from that message. And everything is greasy and oily and slick and neon. And it's almost like the church has adopted the mindset, let's sneak in the back door, let's see if we can get some kind of religious profession out of them, and then we'll just tell them and try to help them to do better. And I'm not above just an old-fashioned moment where I'm saying the wrath of God already abides over sin. And people, apart from the blood of Jesus Christ, are not going to be condemned. The Scripture says you are condemned already. Salvation means you come out of that condemnation by humbling yourself, repenting, and trusting that Jesus died and rose again to pay your sin debt. And friends, if people don't do that, not, not most of them, All of them who do not do that, who harden their heart against God and die in that state of hardening, will suffer the wrath of God if they are alive at this time. 
And so if, if you ever wonder why are we so serious about the gospel, why are we so serious about truth, why are we so serious about the kingdom, it's because the, the other kingdom's coming to a deadly end. And the inhabitants of that kingdom will perish with it. But for those that will say yes to Christ, there is a rescue, there is a freedom, there is a deliverance. There, you go from being an enemy of God to being a son or a daughter of God. And so we're passionate about this. But in this time, it's too late that we're talking about in Revelation. It's too late. Their time has passed. And so the saints in heaven are saying, we worship you because you have kept your word to pour out your wrath upon sin. Let me just say this, and I'll move on. It's uncomfortable. Granted, it's uncomfortable. But just because it's uncomfortable doesn't mean it's unbiblical. Um, I, I, just, I just want to make sure that, that we just stay aware of the reality that it's only the gospel of Jesus Christ that rescues people from this. We are so addicted to trying to pretty up people to make, let them join a religious club. Let's get them baptized. Let's just get them in the church. Let's get them to join our Bible study. Let's teach them to give. And let's teach them not to do these nine immoral things they used to do. And then let's walk them in front of everybody and say, look what we've done. Well, that's exactly right. We've done that. That's not how God operates. God works from the inside out, so he always goes for their heart. And if he goes for their heart, we need to go for their heart too. Um, it may sound a little liberal to some of you, but quite frankly, I, I really don't care what they look like on the outside. I really don't. Um, I deeply care about what's going on on the inside. And in this generation, I'm going to tell you, the, the, I, I'm kind of caught between the old and the young. I'm a middle-aged guy, but I can tell you, the, those younger than me, they can sniff out a religious agenda better than any generation that's ever walked the earth. They are so skeptical. And so we have to come at them with truth and love. And if we really love them, we won't hide the reality that the wrath of God is coming, but Jesus is the rescue. Jesus is the way into the kingdom and out of the kingdom that's doomed. Verse number 18, the second half of it. Away from the tough stuff and into something a little happier here. We will worship him for his generosity. The beginning of verse 18 is wrath. The end of verse 18 is reward they're thanking him. Remember, they're saying, we thank you, we thank you. Why? For rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both small and great. And so, okay, let's, let's come out of the, the, the gloom for a moment. The same God that pours his wrath out upon those that refuse him is the same God that rewards those that accept him. I mean, I, don't you feel like just being forgiven is reward enough? Yeah? Okay, for those of you that don't feel entitled, I mean, I, I just feel like the fact that my sins are forgiven, I mean, I feel like I've got everything I need, but God goes beyond that and he says, I'm not only going to forgive you, but I'm going to bless you, I'm going to reward you, and that's talking about literally when we live this life where there's going to be, for lack of a better word, an assessment. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. It won't be for our sins. We're not going to get our sins judged. My sin was judged in Jesus when he was hung on the cross. All of my sin was placed upon him. The handwriting of ordinances that was against me was nailed to him, nailed to his cross. And so we're not talking about being judged for our sins, but we're talking about being evaluated and assessed for our life. What do we do with our, our Christian life? 
And the Bible says that the Lord is going to have reward. That means this, if you are in any way, to the best of your ability, living out your Christian life, whether it seems spectacular or at times mundane, if you are living Godward, if your heart is towards him and your actions follow your heart, that means the Lord doesn't miss anything. We get, you're going to get overlooked down here. You may try your best, do your best. You'll get passed over. You'll get forgotten. Sometimes you'll get the carpet yanked out from under your feet. You won't get your reward down here all the time. As a matter of fact, the best rewards will never find you down here. The best that God rewards is awaiting you. Now, it gets good down here, but the Bible says that he's going to reward the small and the great, the prophet and the saint. And so it's a beautiful thing that those prophets represent those people that speak and the the saints represent those people that hear what is spoken. And so the Bible says this, it's not just the people doing all the talking that have a reward. Matter of fact, I'll just say this. I think that, that the rewards for preachers like me may be less significant on the other side because there is such a reward in doing it here. There is such gratification and joy and pleasure that comes from doing it here. I I can tell you, almost every time I preach, I like it a lot better than you do. Don't say amen. Don't say amen. But it's true. And so a lot of my reward comes in the moment. I don't know how much I've got up there waiting on me. But the fact is, is God's saying, I'm looking at everybody and the one who's speaking, a reward for him or her. The one who's listening, a reward for him or her. But ultimately, it's, it's us living out to the capacity God has given us unto him. And the beauty of it is this, you're going to be rewarded. I want you to think about that. There's going to come a moment where you have a one-on-one with Jesus Christ, the glorified Lord. It's kind of scary, but it's kind of, kind of awesome too, that, that literally in some capacity, and it will be extremely personal, Paul says, each one of us will stand before the judgment. That, and that's not a scary judgment. That's not the great white throne judgment. It's the, the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, where he will reward you for what you did in your body. And so that means you're going to have one-on-one moment with Jesus, and you are going to be rewarded for everything, stuff you've forgotten about that he hasn't. Oh, y'all ain't with me tonight, but I'm having fun with this thing. So we're going to worship him for his generosity. By the way, I just want to remind you, no matter where you are tonight, he's been really, really, really good to you. And he's not done yet. And, And if you will just maintain that attitude of gratitude and elevate your focus, I promise you, your reward will be great. End of verse number 18. We will worship him for his victory. Here it is again. Lord, we thank you for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Now, that's, that's tough. I like that it's a sandwich there. It's like the tough part of his wrath being poured out, then the good part of the reward, and then again, the tough part. But the, the, the scriptures say this, that they were praising the Lord because in the tribulation time, They've got an elevated view. They're worshiping from heaven. They're seeing what's happening upon the earth. And they are worshiping him at his throne saying, we worship you because your kingdom and your reign has begun on earth. And we thank you that you have destroyed the destroyers. Think of the carnage that has taken place at the hands of wicked people. Think about that. It's going on now. I was just reading reports this week about uh, the Syrian um, government and Assad and the, the fact that they have this massive crematorium over there that they're supposedly burning up to like 500 bodies a day from citizens that they've killed. And they had to build this big crematorium because they want to hide the evidence that they're slaughtering their people. We think of Hitler and the genocide of, of, the, of the Jewish people in the Holocaust. We think of Pol Pot and Stalin and all of these maniacs 
that have just ravaged those that were made in the image of God. And during the tribulation, that, that season's going to dwarf all the other seasons put together. That the carnage is going to be so massive during the tribulation time. And the, the, the worshipers in heaven are saying there is coming this moment. And they're worshiping God as if it was in a state of completion where, where God destroys the destroyer. Now, friends, I don't know about you, but man, it, it, don't, don't lose your sense of longing for justice. We live in an unjust world. I don't know that I've been more aware of injustice than I've been made aware in the last couple of years. So much of it in, in racial inequality, gender inequality, class inequality. And I'm not a communist, I'm not a socialist, but I'm going to tell you something. that God can't be God if he doesn't do what he said. And he said, I will balance the scales. And so if we can't worship him for doing what he said he is going to do, then we're worshiping a God of our own making, not the God who gives self-revelation in the book, uh, in the word of God. And so when, he's, when we're told that he destroys the destroyers of the earth, what does that mean? It means every empty philosophy will be exposed and erased forever. Every corrupt government's going to be overthrown and completely destroyed. Every rogue military will be brought into full submission to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Every false uh, religion is going to be eradicated off the planet. Every movement of rebellion will be silenced. And every proud and godless nation will be humbled by the Son of God when he returns to planet Earth. And that's going to include every terrorist movement that comes against God's people, the Jews, and against the church of the living God. Listen, that day's coming. And until then, we endure, we persevere, we continue by faith, and we press in saying, you're good in spite of what we see. You're good in spite of what we read in the headlines. You're good in spite of the carnage and in spite of the war and in spite of the rebellion and in spite of the injustice and in spite of the atrocities. Lord, you are above all of that and you will bring all things under your feet. We don't see all things placed under your feet yet, but we see Jesus who is the author and the finisher of our faith. And because we see him, we will persevere until the end. We will endure. And so I, I just want to tell you, it's not always going to... There's coming a time where there will be no discouraging headlines. There's coming a time where there will be no abandonment, abuse, or betrayal. There's coming a time where the instruments of war will be turned into pruning hooks and plowshares. There's coming a time where even the hostility in the animal kingdom will be done away with because the Lord of glory will be on earth. And so we will, the, the, the lamb and the serpent will lie down together. So we get down to verse 19, and I'm going to be out of verses, and it works well because I'm out of time, but let me give you verse number 19. Eternal witness is enjoyed. Eternal witness enjoyed. Verse 19, first the witness of God's presence is seen in this worship setting in heaven. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. Now just pause there. So in the vision, as they're worshiping God, as God's fury is being poured out on planet earth, and those that are in heaven are elevated above it, they're not part of what's going on and with the Antichrist and that, that, that awful situation where the Antichrist is stirring up hell on earth and God is pouring out heaven's wrath on earth. And these people are in his presence and so they're above and beyond it. And, and they see, John sees the heavenly temple opened up. 
And it's a reference to the, to the holy of holies. And it speaks of God's presence. It speaks of access. You'll remember with me that the Jewish people could never go into the holy of holies. It was only one person once a year, the high priest, who got to go in and offer that sacrifice. And he had to do it with such preparedness and, and trepidation of heart. Literally, when, when the high priest would go in to offer the, the offering once a year on the Day of Atonement, they would tie a rope around his waist because if he didn't approach God in utmost holiness, he would be struck dead and they would have to pull his body out by rope. That was actually a provision in the law. But here in this heavenly scene, we're in the presence of the Lord and the temple is open. There is no veil. There's nothing keeping us out. It is the message of God that is just echoing across the ages. God saying, my son has removed the veil. You, come in. Come closer. Come closer. Come closer. Come closer. That's the invitation of the Lord. We might be tempted to say, oh, but Lord, but what about the things I've done? What about the things I did? What about the mistakes and the sins and the failures and the, and, and the denials and the, and the inadequacy and the inconsistency? Lord, how can you invite me in? And his answer to that is, I don't see any of that. I've chosen not to remember that. I see the blood of my son upon you. And because his blood is upon you, you are as acceptable to me in my presence as my own begotten son is. That's how you are accepted before the Lord. Say, Jeff, why are you screaming? I don't know, but I'm excited. That's just the way I get when I think, man, he, there's no bolted door in heaven. And the temple opens up. And God's saying, come, come, come. So not only is the witness of his presence, but it's the witness of his faithfulness because when the temple is open, look at what John sees. The ark of his covenant was seen within the temple. You see, the ark of the covenant is, is God's promises and God's word and God's testimony. In that ark, there were three items. You had the two tablets of the law. They were placed within the ark, and you had a little golden pot that was, had manna in it, and the manna was how God fed Israel during the wanderings, and then you had Aaron's rod that had supernaturally blossomed on it, and all of that is in the ark, but it speaks about this. It, 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 the, the symbolism of, of it is this. God's faithful to keep his word. Remember, what he began to speak in the Old Testament was not a separate message than what unfolds in the book of Revelation. God is constantly speaking and acting in redemption. He's constantly countering our faults, our sins, our failures. He's constantly providing what it takes to bring us to him. He's constantly giving grace and constantly giving mercy and constantly speaking covenant and promise over his people. Even when we have failed to live up to our end of the covenant, he brings the new covenant to mankind. The covenant that we couldn't ruin because it wasn't ours at all. It was God said, I make this promise and I will fulfill the terms of the promise and that will be fulfilled in my son Jesus. And so we can't blow it. The only way you can blow that covenant is to say no to it. When you say yes to it, you're covered, brothers and sisters. That covenant was seen there in the temple. By the way, God's word is so very important. It's not, it's not a legalistic thing for, for me to tell you. You really need to be studying and reading your Bible. Just read it. That's not legalism, my friend. I'm not a legalist. I, I love your soul. I love my soul. That's why I read my Bible. 
I don't read it so I can look to God and say, hey, I got my chapters in today. That's, that's not the motivation of my heart. Matter of fact, God's word is so important that in Psalm 138, verse number 2, God says this. The word of God says to God, you have magnified your word above your name. And so when we see that ark of the testimony, that ark of the covenant in there, it is God saying, I want you to know I keep my word And it's fitting because at the back of Revelation, what is God doing? It literally looks like it is chaos on earth during the tribulation. But all it is is God saying, I'm wrapping up my my activity that is accomplishing and completing my promises to you. See, the Lord said he will destroy sin. He will return paradise. He will make himself a peculiar people that will inhabit all of eternity. And in order for that to happen, he has got to take everything that is not qualified for that kingdom. He's got to remove it. And so that's why they're praising and worshiping him. And then at the end of verse 19, and then we'll pray. I love this, man. It's just so, I mean, it's just, it's beautiful. It's almost, in in, in a holy way, it's almost theatrical. So all of this stuff is taking place and the temple is opened and the Ark of the Covenant is seen within the temple. And then John says, and then the lightning came and the quaking of the rumblings and the peal of thunder and the earthquake and the heavy hail. And so what that is, friends, it is, it is literally just a, a climactic moment of sound and sight and intensity. And literally, all of that that is accomplishing in heaven, I want you to know this, if you go to read the ensuing chapters, all of that that is happening in the holy throne of God and in the temple and the lightning and the earthquake and the shaking and the roaring, all of that moves from there and gets poured out on earth. And that is the end of the history of rebels on earth. See, my friends, it wasn't just sight and sound. It was God doing something. So I opened the service with the same thing I'm going to end it with. What is God doing? That's what he's doing. So that means when you go to work tomorrow, or you're doing carpool tomorrow, or you're alone and by yourself tomorrow, or you're at the doctor's office tomorrow, that's your life, but God's doing more. And your life fits into what he's doing. And if you will keep a hold of that, if you will keep your confidence that you are part of the bigger picture. We never evaluate God through the smallness of what's happening in our life at that moment. We always evaluate the smallness of our lives through the big picture of what God is doing. And what is he doing? He is building and establishing and bringing a kingdom which through his son Jesus, you have been included in and that is your destiny. You will be with him forever and ever. He will not fail you.